0: You're listening to the teaching ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church, a relevant biblical community. For more information, visit Houston'sFirst.org. Good morning, church. My name is Grant uh, Partrick. It is an honor to be in the great state of Texas. Uh, we knew yesterday when we took one step off the airplane, you could have blindfolded me and put me on anywhere on earth, and I would have said, I'm in the state of Texas. Um, It's great to be here, and um, I uh, thank God for your pastor, Pastor Greg, and I have been so inspired by uh, him and learned so much from him from afar for a long time, and uh, it's a real uh, joy to get to be here uh, at Houston's First, and you have an amazing church. Sometimes uh, we can take that for granted, so this is my first time ever being here. For all I know, it might be my last time if it doesn't go good, (laughs) so uh, let me just remind you, you have an amazing church. And uh, one of the things that I love about your church, you can clap for that, is that um, they were just sharing 2,300 people were here for VBS. And that was kind of like, oh yeah, like 2,300 people, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. We're at a VBS. And um, I had the privilege last year of being at Rush Week uh, with the high school students. Shout out. I heard that there would be some high school students in this gathering. Are you over here? High school students, a few of you? No noise, okay. Great, apparently went great. Uh, I'm gonna be back at Rush Week in a few weeks and uh, very excited about that. But you know, so many people are making such a big deal about um, the next generation doesn't care anything about God. They don't care about coming to church. They don't care about the things of God. But there is such a different story being written in the church uh, right now, and I praise God for that, and I thank God that here at Houston's First, the faith of the next generation is very much alive and well, and uh, I celebrate that. want to say hi to everybody uh, joining us online and at the Cypress campus. Uh, Pastor Jason Swigert over there, uh, their son Harrison and I get to serve together in Atlanta, Georgia uh, at our church, and I love that, so we already feel like... Uh, family. Let me pray for us. And then we're going to open God's word together uh, as we talk uh, about my life verse. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to gather today. Thank you for every person you brought into this space, every person online, every person uh, at Cyprus today, God. Thank you that you have a unique purpose and plan for each one of their lives that nobody is here by accident or by incident. So I pray that you'd help us just to drowned out all the other distractions for a few minutes so that we might hear clearly from you. Pray that you do something in these next few minutes that are so clearly that a man couldn't do it and it can only be described as something that God must have done. And uh, I pray that you'd break us out of the routine and the boxes that we kind of put around what can happen on a Sunday morning and that you'd give us all a real faith to go if, if there is a living God and he's meeting with people, then anything is possible when that God meets with people. So I pray that you'd come and do what only you can do. In Jesus' name I pray, and everybody said, amen. Amen. Um, I heard Pastor Greg say a few weeks ago that the three leading uh, books that uh, life verses from the church have come from, uh, Psalms, that anybody? In the Psalms crowd, you turned into your thing, a few of you. Romans, any people from Romans, amen. Uh, And also John, which I love. I feel like part of the church because my life verse comes from Romans chapter 12. And uh, we'll get there in just a moment. But before I tell you my life verse, I want to just tell you a little bit about my life. Uh, This is a picture of my family. Uh, This is my wife, uh, Maggie. We have three little girls. Mercy on the far left. She's four now. Ember is the blonde and she's three now. And Charlie is in my arms and she's nine months I have three daughters. I grew up in a house uh, with four boys. I have three brothers. So pray for me is what I'm saying. I am learning a lot about a life and emotions and Disney princesses. And I could quote the movie of Frozen to you right now if you would like to hear that. Uh, but it's such a gift. My wife Maggie is here with me today, sitting right down here. She's uh, the gift of my life and such a great team, uh, teammate church builder and uh, I love you. Thanks for being here today. And we're so grateful that we get to be a part of what God's doing uh, in and through the life of this church. When I was young, at the age of two, I started playing tennis. Any tennis players in the room? A few of you. I counted six, seven, eight. That's about right for this many people. We stick together. Um, my parents didn't play tennis. I just got into it at a very young age, at the age of two. I started playing, and I fell in love with it. I got addicted to it. Uh, from my earliest memories were of me on a tennis court. I brought a picture. This wasn't when I was two, but does that photo not just scream, country club kid right there? Um But I loved it, it's all I wanted to do. And um, you know, I I wanted to watch tennis on TV. And as soon as I was old enough to dream about life, I knew I wanted to play tennis at the highest level. And so as a young kid, five, six, seven, we kind of organized life around chasing down that dream. And I I can remember being in elementary school and I'd be going to the courts before I went to school in the morning and I'd ride the bus back to the tennis courts after school in the afternoon. And I didn't hang out with, you know, friends like everybody else did. I traveled and I practiced and then I traveled again and I practiced and grew up in an amazing home. Both my parents are following the Lord, but I was only at church on Sunday if I had lost in the tournament on Friday or Saturday. So I was not happy if I was at church and uh, this was this kind of what I chose to give my life to. Made great sacrifice to try and chase down this dream. Got to high school and had had some success and chose to leave high school after my junior year. Moved to Hilton Head Island Uh, To train under a guy named Stan Smith, he was a former number one in the world, and has an academy there. And was training under him, and all my dreams were coming true. It was it was this amazing season. And about 14 months into that, I traveled to uh, the worst place on planet Earth, uh, which is Mobile, Alabama. If you're from there, I'm sorry, but I stand by what I said. I think it's the worst place on planet Earth. And. I was playing a match there, first round match. I was on court 43. I can see it like it was yesterday. I hit a forehand like I had done hundreds of thousands of times. Something snapped in my shoulder. And I immediately was rushed to do an MRI, met with a doctor. I had to have surgery, did the surgery, lots of months of rehab, came back, started to play, started to feel healthy again, uh, tore the same shoulder, labrum in the same shoulder again, had another surgery, and ultimately had one more surgery, which ended me up in Dr. Andrew's office in Alabama. And him looking at me saying, if you continue to play tennis, you're not going to be able to throw the ball with your kids when you're older. And for me, as a 20-year-old, my life shattered in a moment. I I can remember sitting in that doctor's office. I remember the terrible artwork on the wall. I I can remember the sound of the voice. I can remember uh, the phone in my hand as I called my parents to tell them what the doctor had said. Um, and I had nothing left. My my whole life had been built on something as fragile as a game, my whole identity, my whole sense of worth, and I I know there are people in this room, and and you you have been through things way more difficult in life than losing your dream to play a sport, but one of the silly things we do is compare pain like it's some kind of a competition. This was the most painful thing that had ever happened to me, and I was left as a 20-year-old with no sense of self-worth, no value, no, no, no sense of do I matter in the world, and I thought, what do normal people do? I guess you go to college and get a job like everybody else. And so I enrolled in a small commuter school by my parents' house. And I started just trying to find some way to matter again. I became the president of everything you could become the president of. I, I tried the party scene. I tried any scene you could possibly get on to go, maybe, maybe if I could climb this ladder, I, I could matter then. Only to get to the top of it and realize it, it didn't, that didn't really work. And I was just in a, in a hopeless season of life. And I, I can remember staring at being in my dorm room, kind of staring at the old rinkety ceiling fan going around and going, dude, you know, what is life about? And everybody's going to ultimately ask two questions in life How did I get here? Why am I here? Does my life have any purpose or any meaning? Those questions are not distinctively Christian questions, they're human questions. Every human being on in every country, will ultimately ask themselves those two questions at some point. Why am I here? How'd I get here? My life have any kind of purpose? And I want us to turn to God's Word today because the answer to two of life's greatest questions are found in His Word. And I just want to remind you today that there's nothing you're going to come up against in life, no situation, no circumstance, no season of life that this Word doesn't speak to. It's not antiquated, it's not outdated, it's living, it's breathing, it's active. This is God's word. And I don't know what questions you have, I don't know what you're wrestling up against in life, but I know this, God is not afraid or intimidated by your questions. He can handle them. And so at a season of life where I blamed God for everything that fell apart in my life, even though I never gave him any credit when things were going good, I was very quick to blame him when they were bad, but in this book, there are answers to life's questions. Now, why the questions aren't distinctively Christian, the answers to the questions are found only in the person of Christ. And in this book, the answer to two of life's greatest questions are found in a simple verse in Colossians chapter one, verse 16. It says this, all things have been created through him and for him. You say, how did I get here? You're here because God put you here. That there's in the, in the next generation, there's this increasing fear uh, or, or thinking of my life has no meaning. I have no purpose. And I just want to say, well, you have enough meaning for God Almighty to take time out of his day to think you up to put unique giftings and talents and wirings and passions in your life and to put you here on planet earth. You have incredible meaning because you have intrinsic worth. You were created in the image of God by the hands of God. And you have a purpose. You were created by God for God. I don't know your story. I don't know everything of what you've been through, but I know there are two things that mark every person who's ever walked on planet Earth. We were created by God and we were created for God. That is our purpose. That's your purpose and that's my purpose. Now, you may have different passions. You may like different things. You may be a school teacher. You you may like math. I don't know why in the world anybody would ever like math. You may may like science. You may be a doctor. You may be a lawyer. You, You may do lots of different things, But all of our purpose is the same, which is you and I exist to give glory and bring glory to Jesus Christ. That our life, as James says it, is a vapor. It's here one day and it's gone the next. And you and I have been given the opportunity. Think of this. If you wrestle with, does my life have any purpose? He's given us the opportunity to attach our lives to the mission of God that will echo for eternity. What could be more purposeful than that? And every person in this room is a worshiper. God has made us to be really good worshipers. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, We're in Houston, Texas. The two great cities of Major League Baseball. Amen? It's our turn again this year, so that'd be nice if that could work out. (laughs) Have you ever been to an Astros game, or, or for me, a Braves game, and seen a grown man that has a CPA firm with paint on his face, just screaming until his voice runs out when a, when a home run is hit. He's got both hands up in the air. He's jumping like he's a little kid. Have you ever seen that? Uh, I, I definitely have. I, I'm, uh, you know We're home of the national champion Georgia Bulldogs, and I have seen grown men With like kids in a mortgage in a job, barking at the top of their, you're just like, what what is happening? God has made us to be worshipers, all of us, and we're really good at it. The question is not, will you be a worshiper? The question is, what is it that you will worship? And my life verse, stemming from these two great questions of how did I get here and does my life have any purpose, led me to Romans chapter 12. And in the first verse, it, this is my life verse, this is what it reads. Therefore, Paul writing, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In verse 2 says, "Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will." Now Paul begins chapter 12 by saying therefore, linking it back to this amazing theological treatise of Romans 1 through 11 and also linking back to the doxology at the end of Romans chapter 11, where Paul, talking all throughout the book of Romans about the rebellion of man and the faithfulness of God, how while we were enemies of God, God moved towards us, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. All throughout the book of Romans, he's just declaring the faithfulness of God. And ultimately, at the end of Romans 11, he just breaks out into song. And this is what he says. He says, "'Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom "'and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgment.'" I don't know how all the melody went. It kind of seems difficult to sing that, but somehow he did it. "'In his past beyond tracing out, "'who has known the mind of the Lord, "'or who has been his counselor? "'Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? "'For from him and through him and for him are all things. "'To him be the glory forever, amen.'" You know you're singing good when you amen your own song. (laughs) But here's the same idea. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And then Paul turns the page, therefore. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercy of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, I want you to to notice a few things, and I'll give you a couple points if you're taking notes. Number one, we see in this text that worship is more than a song. Worship is more than a song. Now, we in our culture have shrunk, sadly, worship down to being a genre of music on Spotify. Worship is what we do on Sunday mornings when they get up there and sing for a little bit. But worship is so much more than just a song. Paul uses the word bodies here. Offer your bodies is the Greek word, soma. It includes the totality of who you are. Nothing off limits. Everything about your existence is to be offered as a living sacrifice to God. And that's because people in this day and people in our day were very good at severing head and heart. That's why Jesus warned the religious leaders. He said, They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That it's possible to sing worship songs and not be a worshiper. That what makes you a worshiper is not necessarily the lyrics that come out of your mouth, but more so what resides in your heart. And Paul says, Offer your bodies, offer everything that you are and everything that you have as worship, as a living sacrifice to God. Now, let me be clear. God loves songs. Some 400 times in the scripture, it's mentioned about singing to God. And 50 times in the scripture, we're commanded to sing to God. So God loves our songs, but he, he demands more than just our songs. There's really maybe five words in the New Testament used for worship. One one of the words uh, means to to bow down in reverence or to bow down before a holy one, and that's really the word we typically would use for Sunday morning worship. It's the word proskuneu, And, and that's probably the most common word for worship, but here in this text, Paul doesn't use that word. He uses a different word, and the word he uses means worship as service, meaning worship in your everyday life, meaning your service to God, not just your song to God, but your life being offered to God, that's what's holy and pleasing to God. That's your true and proper worship. So Paul here is saying that worship is more than a song. Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, wrote in 1707 in the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Listen to these lyrics. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. So worship is not meant to be an aspect of your life. It's meant to be all of your life. Sunday is worship for sure, but so is Monday, and so is Wednesday, and so is your marriage and so is your parenting, and so is your finances, and so is your career, and so is your school, and so is your health, and so is every part of you is meant to be worship to God. That's what it means to be a worshiper. Worship is not something that we do. Worship is who we are. God has made you, and God has made me to be worshipers. So I wonder, just To wrestle with the question, is there any area of your life right now that you have refused to offer as worship to God? Maybe you're kind of approaching life right now, like you and God have some kind of a negotiation going on. You get get Sundays, I'm going to keep Saturdays. You can have my family, but I keep my career. And God doesn't work like that. And what I found to be true in my own life is the things that you withhold from God tend to not work out that great. Because whatever you white knuckle and grip in your own hands and remove from being under the waterfall of blessing and grace from God, typically will be the things that cause you to have a lack of peace and a lack of joy in your life. And when we withhold worship from God, it's not God who misses out, it's us. Because He's God. He doesn't have any needs. He doesn't need anything from anybody in this room. He's God. He owns that. He owns it all. He he owns everything. He's not sitting up in heaven today going, oh man, I I really wish, you know, Eric would have put me at number one in his life today because now I'm really wrestling with my worth today because Eric didn't choose to put me as number one. Instead, you know, he put so-and-so as number one and I'm kind of wrestling through that. No, he's God. He's got rocks crying out to him and trees singing songs to him. He's got angels encircling the throne 24-7 singing, holy, holy, holy. God will be worshipped. It's our choice whether we will join into the worship of heaven that will echo and reverberate for history or whether we will worship something that will fade in a matter of years. And for me, it was as simple as a game and it came crashing overnight. And I don't know what it is maybe that you're tempted to withhold from God, but I wanna encourage you with everything I have to put it on the altar before God as a living sacrifice. And in it, you will find hope, You will find peace and you will find joy. You're made not just to worship, but to be a worshiper. Number two, we see in this text that worship will cost you something, all worship is sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 13 has one of my favorite verses of worship. It says, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise. Our whole story hinges on sacrifice. Without sacrifice, we have nothing, namely the sacrifice of Jesus leaving heaven, coming to planet earth, living the life you couldn't live, dying the death that we deserved, but not staying dead, defeating death, sin, hell, and the grave, and said, I'm taking all those who believe with me. This is the good news of the gospel, but it is predicated on sacrifice and worship for us will require sacrifice. There, there is currently in the culture this idea that we can kind of lug as much of our old life as we want with us as we begin to live our new life. So we're gonna negotiate with Jesus a little bit. Hey, I'm gonna take these three things and I'll take these couple things you got and we'll keep moving forward. But that's not how the gospel works. The gospel still is to this day that Jesus requires for those who follow him, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. That, that self-denial is still a very real prerequisite for the Christian life. So to be a true worshiper means it's gonna cost you something. Namely, it's gonna cost you you. It's going to cost you your preferences. It's going to cost you your desires. It's going to cost you, you know what, I really wanted to do that, but I'm going to have to do it God's way because I'm going to deny myself and I'm making a sacrifice of praise here so that I can live a life that's holy and pleasing to God. All worship requires sacrifice. Now think about this if you were the audience hearing Paul deliver this message in ancient Rome. He says, I want you to Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Those two words together are an oxymoron. You can't have a living sacrifice. For them, they would only be thinking about the Old Testament sacrificial system. And in the Old Testament sacrificial system, in order for something to be a sacrifice, it would have to first be dead, killed right? They, they, they would bring the animal, they would kill the animal, and then they would place it on the altar as a sacrifice to God. This would be a sacrifice of atonement or a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now, praise God, there is no more requirement for any other sacrifices of atonement. The shed blood of Christ on the cross one time for all time is satisfied the sacrifice of atonement. God doesn't need any more sacrifices of atonement that was met in full by Christ but there still is to be sacrifices. And in the Old Testament, the idea for the worshiper of God is you would bring your sacrifice, you would kill it, and you would lay it on the altar. But Paul says, I want you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. What's the difference for us that live in the shadow of the cross? It's we no longer bring something and put it on the altar. We crawl ourselves onto the altar. And we say, here I am, God. I am a living, breathing, fractured, sinful, but redeemed son of God, in everything I have, in everything I am, in everywhere I go, is gonna be offered to you as worship. That's what it means to be a worshiper. It doesn't mean that you go to Christian things. It doesn't mean that you have good church attendance. We're not going to get to heaven and the angel's going to say, hey, let me see your passport and how many times you checked in to Christian things. No, it's going to be, did you off, Did you live your life, your vapor of a life in a way that honored God? Did you receive the grace that was offered to you at Calvary? And did you live a life in response to that? That's what I want to be. And I think that's what is holy and pleasing to God. Lastly, and I would argue most importantly, we see in this text that worship is a response. Worship is always a response. All of Romans 12, and when you go down through the end of Romans 12, the, in my Bible, the header says marks of a true Christian. You should read those. All of that hinges, I would argue, all of the Christian life hinges on five little words tucked away in the first verse of Romans chapter 12. And those five words are in view of God's mercy. That the fuel for the Christian life is that you enter into your living through the door of the mercy of God, that you constantly are rehearsing the mercy of God in our lives. Now, I know this even in my own life, that for many of us, the gospel is something we got, like when we went to a high school camp, and you're like, I got that. I could pass the test. I'm good. I understand what the gospel is. I'm ready to graduate from that and move on to the deeper end of spirituality. Well, there is no deeper end of spirituality. You never graduate from the gospel. You just grow in your understanding of it. That in order to truly live a Christian life, it must be fueled by gospel gratitude. So he says, before you come offer your body as a living sacrifice, make sure before you do that, you've got the mercy of God in view. Lock eyes with what happened at Calvary. Lock eyes with what happened at the cross. Rehearse in your own life how the gospel has changed your life. And then with that kind of gospel gratitude percolating in your heart, now step in to offer your body as a living sacrifice. And I am convinced personally, and even in my own life, I have felt this in seasons, that there's a lot of people trying to live the Christian life without Christ fueling them. And we're wondering why we're tired, why we're breaking down, why, why we're running out of gas, why we're running on fumes. It's because we have lost sight of the gospel that we're just trying to do good Christian things, but it's not really a response to what's been done for us in Christ. And I'm convinced that the last thing we need is a bunch of Christians lugging around the chain of, I just got to work for Christ the rest of my life. Nobody on planet earth is going to be interested in that. Why would the world want what we have in Christ if we project to them like what we actually want is what they already have in the world? Christ is not looking for people just lugging the ball and chain of their Christianity around. He's looking for people that will go, wow, I've rehearsed the gospel today. When I woke up before my feet hit the floor, I'm reminded of all the ways you've been good to me, namely that you saved me through the person of Christ and the finished work of the cross. So before my feet hit the ground, before I type my first email, before I sit down and talk to my kids at breakfast, I'm going to make sure that all of my life today is a response to that. Not just in my desire to be good, moral, people can do that. Our call is not to live morally good lives. It is to live gospel-saturated, cross-informed, worshipful lives that bring glory to God. And the only way we can do that is to have the cross in view. For me, I, I, in my Bible, on almost every page, I, I have 2007 written. On my whiteboard in my office in giant letters, I have 2007 written. On almost every notes to every message that I've ever preached, I have 2007 written. Why? Because 2007 was the last year that I remember what it was like to be trapped in my sin with no way out. I have not forgot the feeling of hopelessness despair i can remember what it felt like not not just physically but even emotionally as i laid on that bed in my dorm room watching that little rinkety ceiling fan go around trying to figure out do i even want to be here anymore i remember that do do you remember that like if you've been saved by the grace and mercy of God, if he's broken chains off of your life and offered you a new life, if he if you're alive in him, if you have put your faith in him, if the gospel has been seen and tasted in your own life, how often do you remember the moment before you had that? Paul says, you got to have that in view you got to have the mercy of God in view. So I think about that dorm room. I think about 2007, and then I think about it in 2008, because in 2008, I got tricked into going to a Christian conference. Christians will do that. <laughs> I was told it was a concert with a T, and I like live music. So I was like, great, happy to go. Turns out it was a conference about Jesus. I was not very happy to be there. But I sat up in the very top row and I'm sure externally my face just screamed, I do not want to be here and I do not care about this. But I was so desperate on the inside. I had tried so many things that didn't work. I had burned up all the other avenues I thought that would lead to life and none of them worked. So while externally I looked like I didn't want to be there internally as my pastor, Pastor Louis Giglio preached the word, I thought that guy really looks like he believes what he's saying. And he's talking about a God who can take ashes and turn them into beauty, and I don't even know what all that means, but I know that my life just looks like a heap of ashes right now. It looks like a bunch of scat, like someone just took a hammer to a mirror, and the pieces all broke apart, and for the last few years, I've been trying to, maybe I could put these pieces together, and that, that would make something, or maybe I could put these pieces, in. And it began a process for me it wasn't like that it began a process where i started asking lots of difficult questions and over the next year i found james to be true as i draw near to god he drew near to me as i investigated him in his word he revealed himself to me ultimately to the point where i didn't have all the answers to all life questions i just realized more of life makes sense with god than without him i've tried everything else And God didn't come and pick up all the broken pieces and offer me some kind of version 2.0 of the life I had before. He just said, guess what? The message of the gospel is not that I can repair a broken life, I'm gonna give you a new life altogether. A new dream to preach the message of the goodness of Jesus Christ all over the earth. And when I stand here now, this is insane to me. When I stand here now, a decade plus, after staring at the little rinkety ceiling fan, I think to myself, there's no way God's this good. There's, there's, There's no way anybody on earth wouldn't want that if they could understand what happened at the cross. And I stare at those numbers, 2007, 2007, 2007. Why? Because most of the people who work at your company Most of the people who live in your neighborhood, they're in 2007 right now. Can I tell you what they need? They need Jesus. And you going to church on Sundays is great. You having a little segment of your life that's Christian is great. But what they need to see most is a worshiper, not just a church goer. Someone who has said, I have seen something so beautiful in the cross and in Jesus Christ that I am choosing now to come and lay my life down, to deny myself because I've seen something greater, to lay my life down as a living sacrifice to God. That's what your company needs. That's what this city needs. That's what my city needs. They need to see worshipers arise. Full life Nothing off limits. My primary identity is I'm a son of God and my primary purpose is not my career path. It is to make much of Jesus Christ during my vapor of a life on planet earth. So my life verse, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. My life quote, which Pastor Greg didn't ask me to share, but I'm gonna share it with you anyways. It's by a guy named C.T. Studd. Great missionary, great evangelist. And this has seared my life and fuels so much of what I do. He said, only one life twill soon be passed Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, twill will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. As Paul wraps up this amazing verse, catalytic verse for me, he's, he's talking about living in view of God's mercy and, offering your body as a living sacrifice, and then he gets to the end, and I don't know what translation you might be reading from. In mine, it says, this is your true and proper worship, or some translations may say, this is your reasonable service, but the word there is the word lohikos, which is where we get our word logical from. And it's as if Paul is saying, keep the gospel in view every day at all times and live your life Stemming from gospel gratitude. Offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And then it's as if he says, that's the only logical response to the mercy of God in your life. Like, like, to have the mercy of God in view and then to somehow negotiate with God, I'll give you this, but not this. You can have my family, but not my career. You can, have my, you, know, you can have my past, but not my future. You can have this day, but not that day. Paul's going, that's not even a logical response when you have the mercy of God at view in your life. So I wanna pray for you as we close. And my prayer is this, that more than you just having attended church today, that you would allow God to search your heart and to genuinely have a conversation with him. God, is there anything that I'm withholding from you? And if there is, I want to offer it today. I want to offer myself today and all of who I am as a living sacrifice. And I want my life to count for the things that matter most. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's alive and active. I don't know who in this room today even is living in a 2007 moment, but I know it's a lot of people. Been people that have been coming to church for a decade, but tonight when they go home, you know, stare up at the ceiling and wonder, why am I here? Does my life have any purpose? Thank you today for your word, God, that we can have assurance that our lives have great meaning because they've been designed and created by you. And they have great purpose because somehow by your grace, you've invited us to tether our life to your mission. Give us all the courage to do that today, to search our hearts and to release our white knuckled grips on the things that we care so deeply about. And to say to you genuinely, there's nothing off limits for you. You can have all of who I am We want to be worshipers. Not just people who do worship, but people who live worship-filled lives for your glory. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church. We invite you to worship with us at one of our four locations at The Loop, Cypress, Downtown, or Siena. Follow us on social media or visit us online at houstonsfirst.org.